Um, if you can't answer those things, then uh, it's it's a real problem, right? Um, you know, the who, what, when, where, why, and how of data access is is what I refer to it as. And if you can understand all those those aspects of how data is being accessed in your environment, then um, you know you, you're a mile ahead in today's landscape of most organisations. to KBcast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Ryan Hart, welcome to the show. Firstly, I want to ask, like, how, how are you? Because, I mean, we spoke originally, so I'm keen to hear a little bit more about your journey. But how have things sort of been the last few months since we did speak? Oh, you know, I think the pandemic's obviously affected everybody, right, including myself. Um, but uh, look, the last few months have actually been, you know, a bit of a change because we've slowly been able to get back to doing some in-live events, which, um, yeah, like I've hosted a couple of in, in the January, February period, um, which you know, has been a real breath of fresh air, to be honest, um, instead of having to do everything virtual. And, um, yeah, it's it's... Yeah, certainly changing. Hopefully, back to yeah, somewhat what it was before the pandemic and the the uh, the whole uh, way of working changing to being virtual, which I think everybody's yeah probably had, had enough of, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, you're so true. I went to an in person event last night, and I thought I hadn't been to one in probably almost three years of that size. So it was interesting because it's it's almost weird to see that many people in the flesh how we used to do things so I totally agree with you I think the whole virtual thing is a bit fatiguing after a while uh, and I'm, I'm keen to sort of hopefully things start to change so now I'm, I'm interested to know a little bit more about you and where you started in your career so if you don't mind can you sort of talk our listeners through where you started to yeah yeah so, uh, yeah, sure. Wow. I mean, you're certainly asking for it there because, I mean, I've, I've been in the industry for uh, some 28 plus years. Um, I'll try and, as <laughs> best I can, condense that journey um, so that it, yeah, makes some sense to everybody. But, um, you know, like I always, uh, I guess, like to start off with, um, you know, really where I started, right, was with my uh, schooling and education, right? So when I was a teenager, I, yeah, I had a yeah, big interest in computers and electronics um, and really a thirst to understand how things worked under the bonnet. Um, and, yeah, I was, I guess I was fortunate enough to have gone to a, a public school, a public high school that had computer science as, as you know, one of its year 11 and 12 subjects, um, which back then, you know, in Victoria and, and in Australia was, was a bit of a rarity. Um, computer science was just being recognised as a, you know, as a subject that you could actually do and a, and a career that you could possibly pursue. Um, you know, in, in all sorts of different ways. Um, but, you know, I loved writing code, um, learning about computer science principles, and, and that came somewhat naturally to me. And, and that led to then, you know, after completing Year 12 uh, you know, tertiary studies in computer science and electrical engineering at, at RMIT uh, University, um, you know, and, and aligning with, um, you know, this interest was, was also my... Um, you know, deep interest in communications, um, and, and during the period that I went through tertiary education, I also um, became a, a ham radio operator. Out of all things, pretty geeky, I guess. Um, but yeah, did did all the you know the exams to, to basically um, pass my ham radio license, and and that allowed me to do things like build transmitters and receivers and 
experiment with antenna systems, which was pretty cool stuff at the time um, because it was, you know, well before the, the advent of the internet becoming mainstream and, you know, Wi-Fi and mobile phone technology was really almost non-existent or at the very best in its infancy. Um, and, yeah, I guess that led to starting, you know, after graduating from, from RMIT in, you know, around 94, I guess that sort of may, may show or tell how, um, how old I am <laughs> and how long I've been in the industry. But, um, yeah, after graduating, I, I started working pretty much immediately for uh, an Australian-based, you know, financial services software developer. Uh, they were also a security integrator and software reseller, and they, they were known as um, Megatech. So there's a name for you, um, which some people in the industry may, you know, that listen to your podcast have, have some uh, alliance with because they're in the industry for quite a while, known quite well throughout Australia. Um, but, yeah, I started my, my career as a software support or in a software support role, um, which quickly led, you know, to, um, you know, stepping stones to solution design, solution architecture, security consulting and, and pre-sales roles. So, now, I, was, I was part of a technology team at Megatech that evaluated multiple security and connectivity-based technologies, um, which they then brought to market. Um, and many of them were, you know, uh, technologies and vendors that, you know, were not yet in Australia, right? So, you know, we brought them into the country. So to give you some examples, technologies and, and vendors like RSA, um, so and their two-factor, you know, Secure ID authentication solution, which, again, I'm sure that, you know, most people are very familiar with, but you know we we brought that into Australia, into the country, um, and at the time, you know, Megatech was the uh, the sole distributor for that technology, um, amongst many other uh, technologies that, that I evaluated and, and they brought into the country, including you know SSL VPN technology, IPsec VPN and remote access technology, uh, identity and access management solutions, right from the likes of. Um, vendors like Net Netegrity, which I think they're still around today, although I haven't looked recently. Um, data encryption, data at rest, data in transit type technology and, and PKI solutions um, from Jamelto is another you know, area that I heavily you know, uh, got involved with. And then all your typical yeah, technologies that were surfacing at the time, like checkpoint firewalls, Bluecoat proxies, McAfee antivirus, and, and specifically uh, very in-depth um, you know, knowledge and, and you know, dug into their DLP endpoint solutions. Um, so, yeah, really a whole range of technologies. And I guess you know, one of the underlying um, you know, vendors and technologies that really you know, underpinned a lot of my knowledge around you know, what the internet does today, which is really just depend on um, TCP as a, as a protocol to communicate uh, across all the different devices that are now connect to it was um, two companies, um, one known as WRQ or Walker Richard Quinn, uh, and the other is Tatchmate. So Tatchmate, both of those were, were very prominent at the time, providing you know, TCP IP connectivity for uh, back then Microsoft DOS, right? So Microsoft DOS and very early versions of Windows. So we're really going back in time. Um, but the knowledge I built up from having worked with those, you know, very low-level communication stacks and technologies has, has all really helped me today um, in, in where I am. Um, so, yeah, and then, look, I mean, in, in the late 90s, you know, uh, Megatech was acquired by a US-based global integrator, 
uh, and software developer known as Canby. Um, and Canby was you know, really my first experience at working for not only a, a global company, but um, a company that went through the process of an IPO on the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, that was you know, sort of in around the 2002 era. Um, and then eventually, you know, Canby was acquired and, you know, as, as we see today, many acquisitions happening, but they were acquired by Capgemini uh, and the security you know, integration and reseller portion of the business that, that really I was part of um, at the time was was sold off and became a new Australian entity known as Loop Technology um, and Loop. Mm, so yeah, so a lot of a lot of um, tenure at what was I guess you know first Megatech then Cambay and then Loop seventeen or so years to be, you know, to you know when you add it all up it was kind of the same company but three different transitions and acquisitions and so on. Um, but it gave me a great deal of experience and exposure to the cybersecurity market, um, you know, and especially having undertaken you know, security design, consulting, architecture type projects for, for many Australia and uh, New Zealand based companies that you know, spanned all different types of verticals from, from retail to government to telecommunications, healthcare, and uh, banking. So, you know, it's. Um, I had a lot of exposure over those years that I that I worked, um, yeah, uh, for for Megatech and as I say, Cambay and then Loop Technology. So you know, I was always also very entrepreneurial in nature, um, and as a side project, uh, you know, to when I was actually working at Loop in the early two thousands, I also wrote, um, marketed, and sold through a, an e commerce and a website, um, an application for businesses to generate. Usage and billing reports uh, for, for for radius authentication and, and uh, you know accounting protocol based you know, products. So, you know, radius was pretty much the protocol of choice at the time for authenticating remote access users and Wi-Fi users. And uh, yeah, again, going back to that that period of time, bandwidth you know bandwidth was, was still a um, a premium for most organisations from a cost point of view, and they they were looking for ways to perform internal usage and charge back on on the usage of, of remote access you know, and, and most of the time at a, uh, at a departmental level. So, yeah, I, I named the software RADREP. So, you know, the acronym standing for, for RADIUS Reporting. Uh, had great success selling it online with, you know, uh, both you know, through e-commerce and, and through resellers globally. And, uh, you know, customers, to give you an example, range from your local caravan park, you know, who wanted a way to charge back their tenants for Wi-Fi internet usage to, um, small ISPs and, and then large customers like NASA and the U.S. Department of Defense, who um, yeah, used it for, for reporting on you know, forty thousand plus employees and, and their remote access you know, traits and usage. So yeah, and then um, so a, a period in my my life that I spent a lot of time sort of you know, um, you know developing you know, software and and um, you know and in two thousand and five I, I pretty much sold a portion of the rights to that software to a company called Secure Computing um, who bundle, you know, that, that particular, you know, RadRip software with their remote access solution and two-factor authentication solution. Um, some people may remember Secure Computing. Uh, computing. They were um, eventually acquired by, you know, McAfee, right, in that big uh, technology acquisition game that we, we still see today. Um, and then, yeah, look, in, in 2007, you know, I, I left... Loop Technology started my own security consulting and reseller business uh, called Coherence Technology. I had six staff, um, 
you know, again, providing that security design, consulting and implement, implementation services to you know, typically large government uh, transformation projects uh, and some of the big four banks here in Australia. Um, and in you know, 2015, when most of the big programs of work and contracts you know, that we were involved in finished up, I decided to wind down uh, Coherence Technology um, and go back to, to working for someone else, uh, per se. Um, yeah, so you know, running your own business can, can certainly be lucrative, but it uh, certainly saps up a great deal of, of time, which you know, at, at the time I needed to really direct to other areas of uh, my personal, personal life. Um, and you know, just to really sort of give you a little bit about that, I mean, um, from a personal point of view, I, you know, I have a family, I have daughters. Uh, one of them had a, uh, was battling a, a brain tumour at the time. And um, yeah, thankfully today she's she's through it and she's healthy and thriving. But um, it certainly made me, you know, change my priorities as a you know, as a family man and a fa- and a father. Um, yeah, so hmm, so all good today though. She's she's thriving and as I say, going well. Luckily, you know, for us, she you know, managed to get through it all. Uh, but it was a really you know, telling time for us as a family. Um, and then yeah, look, I guess to sum it up, in in two thousand and fifteen. Um, I joined Imperva, which is you know, brings me to where I am today, and, and starting off in you know security pre-sales role, uh, and now reporting to our um, global CTO uh, as a director of technology with uh, our CTO office. Um, so, you know, for those that don't know, Imperva you know specialises in application and data security, uh, which for me is great because it's you know right in the sweet spot um, of my you know skills and experience and. It really leverages all the the education and experience that I've gained throughout my my career to date, right? That I've kind of tried to summarise very quickly, but you know that's that's uh, that's me in a well, hopefully not not too long a, a snapshot, but as as you know, twenty eight years condensed into I don't know how many minutes we just um, ten minutes we went through then, but yeah, so there's a lot there, and yeah, happy to share it with people because um, yeah, I certainly have been in the industry for quite a while, and and. You know, I think I've got a lot to share and a lot of experience to to use to help you know, the industry and, and people within it. No, I really appreciate you sharing that. And you do have quite the journey. And as you were speaking, sort of, you know, it's coming to my mind is, you know, you, were, you said from schooling days and then you're obviously uh, developing software and then you had your own business, then you sold your this business. So I think you've definitely had experience from every side which is probably rare to find. And I, I like people to walk through their journey simply because people have different perspectives because we have come from different pedigrees so of that experience that you've had and that you've walked through why do you believe the security industry has got data protection all wrong yeah great you know great question or i guess you know a big part of what we're here to talk about today and yeah, you know, look through working in the industry for a long time, you know, and, and and seeing the different technologies that are being adopted to yeah to address data protection needs. Um, you know, after after coming to Imperva, I can you know really say that that you know I can see that CISOs have really just been using the same yeah data protection playbooks for you know at least the last fifteen to twenty years, right? So. Um, yeah, using controls like you know, identity and access management, encryption, you know, data classification, you know, DLP or data loss prevention. Um, they've all been around for a long time and they, and they really still make up the, the bulk of, of what CISOs are, are doing when it comes to, to data protection programs and strategies. 
um, you know, really. But however, when you look at it, um, this, you know, these controls and, and playbooks and strategies really are failing us, right? Because you know, if you <laughs> if you look at the number of breaches that are, that are happening and continuing to be publicised in the media, right? Um, it's just astounding. Um, yeah. When you look at some of the statistics um, that are published, you know, the number of, of data breaches you know, is increasing, you know, 30% year on year. Um, and the number of records compromised in each breach each year is increasing, you know, by an average of 200 plus percent, right? So there's some pretty amazing figures um, there that, that, you know, are not, not great for the industry when it comes to, you know, the effectiveness of what's being done today to protect data. Um, you know, and, and data breaches are, you know, well publicised. I mean, you know, I don't need to probably rattle off, um, you know, <laughs> all the ones that, that, that have happened this year or the year before. I mean, that the media does a good enough job of that. But, you know, we're talking often in the scale of, of millions to hundreds of millions of, of, you know, records of data lost in, in, in you know, many of these breaches. And that can obviously lead to all sorts of issues for, the end users whose data is lost, um, you know, like being subject to uh, financial fraud or identity theft. But for organisations, it, it can also mean, you know, being subjected to large industry fines and, and loss of reput- reputation and, and, you know, and custom, right? Their, their customers are, are going to really think twice about whether they want to stay, you know, uh, engaged with that business if, you know, they've lost their data and they're being subjected to, you know, some sort of uh, fraud or, or identity theft, right? So you don't typically have, um, you know, that much data, you know, millions and hundreds of millions of records uh, exfiltrated from organisations through um, things like, you know, endpoints and unstructured data sources, right? Um, data exfiltration and data loss at that scale typically comes from exfiltration of, of, of data from, from data stores, right? So from relational databases, from big data data stores, um, etc. Um, and yeah, how is it typically being exfiltrated from, from these big data repositories and relational databases? Well, you know, a great deal of the time it's through application and API compromise. Um, so you know, if you if you read the the Verizon you know, annual data breach report, uh, which uh, is quite easily accessible you know, on the web, uh, their report and their findings clearly. Uh, support that you know, application compromise was was involved in the overwhelming majority of data breaches that are reported. Um, the other interesting point, I guess, is that you know the the SOC or the function of the SOC, the Security Operations Centre within an organisation, in in most cases, totally missed detecting these large scale data loss or exfiltration events. Um, you know, essentially, they, they happened under their noses and, and under their watch with with you know no real um, flags or alerts popping up to the fact that they were happening. So, yeah, when you look at this, you have to really raise the, some questions around, well, what are we doing wrong when it comes to securing our data, right, as an industry or as an organisation, right, at the, I guess, the, the more micro level. Um, and I think, you know, if we take a step back um, and, and look at the way we collect data and store data and process data, it's, it's drastically changed, right, over um, the last 10 to 15 or so years. Um, and I think that may provide some clues as to potentially why, you know, obviously we're seeing the, the data breaches at the scale that we're seeing them. But, um, you know, if we, I guess if we look at, 
you know, before the advent of, of and I'll use the iPhone as an example, right? Because because that was really the you know the trigger for mobile applications and you know the you know, the, the, the big burst and, and adoption of mobile applications that we've seen you know right up until today and we continue to see today. Um, but that all led to you know um, you know the fact that we're no longer collecting data in, in paper-based formats, right? So it's not going into forms that our customers, you know, write their details on and, and or spreadsheets and then, you know, we, we have a data entry operator or someone entering that data through a central, you know, data entry application. Um, you know, the old school days was a, a green screen app, right, that, um, you know, is still around today to some extent but very, very limited, right? And But they were used extensively for, you know, gathering paper-based data entry and and you know, punching that into you know, some sort of application that, that had a data store behind it, right? So, um, you know, today obviously we use web applications, mobile apps, single-page apps, which uh, make use of APIs and allow end users and our customers and prospective customers to, to enter data that we collect about them and uh, that's all in order for us to provide them some sort of service, right? And this this single change in how we collect data has meant that we're collecting, storing, processing data at a you know, really a faster rate than ever before um, in history. So yeah, when it when data is entered into an application, it's you know when you think about it, it's it's not typically being stored after it's entered uh, into a spreadsheet or a file. It's it's being stored in a relational database or a big data repository of some sort, some you know data store. It's centralized in nature usually. So, you know, you, you can view applications and, and APIs as really now being the largest gateways to data in our environments um, just because of this, you know, explosion in, in application development and mobile apps. Um, so when there is, you know, or when they are compromised in some way and, and we read about, you know, application compromises, we read about, you know, zero-day threats that, that, you know, are wreaking havoc through our uh, environments and the internet, but when they are compromised in some way, it can really spell disaster for, for data loss and um, and from a data exfiltration perspective. Uh, so really, yeah, really, I think, um, yeah, really, I think there should be more uh, focus on on securing, you know, exactly that, right? How we collect data, how we store data, you know, and how that data is subsequently being accessed by by users and applications from the large data stores that they were initially used to store that data. And, and you know, that, that's something that, that I think, um, you know, is a, is a big lacking in today's you know, strategies around data protection. You said something before that CISOs are using the same playbook for the last 15 to 20 years. Now, in any sector, doing the same thing for 15 to 20 years is probably not ideal, but especially in this space where things change minute by minute. So I just have to ask, like, why are people doing that? That's uh, a really good question. And, um, you know, without probably shooting the industry in the foot too much, I mean, uh, you know, personally, I think it's really because the industry is just sticking to what they know, right, and and what was once effective um, rather than, you know, what's, what's really needed and uh, what's needed now in order to, to better tackle the issue of data security, data protection. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, um, identity and access management, encryption, data classification, DLP, I mean, they're all still undoubtedly have a place, 
as part of an overall cybersecurity strategy and, and data protection strategy. But many of these controls haven't really kept up with you know, the shift uh, needed to better protect data in today's modern enterprise. So, you know, really, if I maybe you know, have a look at one of them, and, and DLP, right, is a, uh, you know, it's an example that, that's usually a control that's the cornerstone of most data protection strategies. Uh, but its focus is is typically, you know, what I would refer to as inward facing, right, in that it, it focuses on the endpoint uh, and predominantly only on controlling how our, our staff, our organisation or our company staff interact with data from their endpoint device, right? And, you know, given how much data is now collected and stored, um, yeah, data, sure, it gets down to the endpoint device, but it's usually, you know, it usually gets there by users first interacting with an application that pulls it out of a central database. Uh, and that, you know, and that part, I think, has been totally missed. And, and you know, for whatever reason, the industry, as I say, just, I guess, you know, wants to stick to, to what they're, they're doing and what they know best how to do. Uh, so they stick to the traditional controls that, that have been around for years and years. So... You know, I think if you if you're closely monitoring your data um, in a data store, then or if you're not doing that, then you're never going to see um, how the data got down to the end user's you know desktop or endpoint in the first place, um, which you know I think is a is a big part of, of um, you know data protection strategy that that most organisations you know have missing. So monitoring data access you know at its source is, is really so important, but it's just not something that many organisations have adopted unless they're typically in heavily regulated industries like um, banking and finance and you know, some of the some of the other industries that are very heavily regulated, they're, they're forced to do it, right? And they're in the best position, to be honest, from a, a data protection playbook perspective, uh, you know, to really get, get on top of you know, how their data is being used, who's using it, how they're using it, answering all those questions that typically you need to be able to answer uh, particularly, you know, if, you know, should I say if or maybe when, uh, you know, the company or the organisation goes through some sort of data breach incident. Uh, if you can't answer those things, then uh, it's it's a real problem, right? Uh, you know, the who, what, when, where, why and how of data access is, is what I refer to it as. And if you can understand all those those aspects of how data is being accessed in your environment, then, um, you know, you, you're a mile ahead in today's landscape of most organisations. I understand because, of course, as human beings, we are creatures of habit and we always like to sort of go back to what we always know, which is what you've just talked about here, right? But, okay, what I don't get is if you're a CISO or you're a security manager, your whole role and you get paid money to protect your company, right? So why would people then be reliant on things that they know probably don't work, but it's because of what they know? Like, I, I can't quite understand the logic like you're not there to just practice security you're there to actually secure an organization and so falling back on sort of passe playbooks does seem not like the right thing to do but also it does a disservice it's counterintuitive so that, that's what's coming up on my mind like address some of those concerns yeah for sure i mean you know i think you know again i think it's the industry and specifically uh the, the global system integrators I'll, I'll maybe pick on them you know, as a as a starting point, but but you know, I think they're somewhat responsible for setting you know and persisting with data protection strategies and controls that that are 
you know, that are being used and shown to have become largely ineffective. And, and this is because, you know, they're educating and they're consulting to, to these organisations and providing guidance to CISOs. Um, but you know, many of those controls that, that, you know, make up the base of their consulting practices, and that's why I think they're, you know, they're sticking with them, right, because they built practices up over a considerable amount of time um, and it's simply what they know and, and how they make their money, so they've stuck with it without being um, you know, too brutal on them. I mean, they're, they're obviously doing a, a yeah, they're doing a good job, and don't get me wrong, a lot of those other controls are still very valid. Um, but yeah, there needs to be a mind shift, and, and you know, something needs to be done, uh, you know, to to really curb the the data loss events and exfiltration events and data breaches that we're seeing, you know, in today's landscape. Um, so, you know, if I um, pick on, you know, one of the things that, that most of the, the global system integrators, you know, have organisations do as a priority, um, it's, you know, data discovery and data classification exercises. And, you know, don't get me wrong, it's, it's a valid part of a data security, data strategy program, but, but these exercises typically focus, you know, on uh, or have a heavy focus on unstructured data and can take an exceptionally long time um, to execute and undertake uh, as a project in any environment. Um, you know, and I'm talking in the order of six months to two years is, is not uncommon uh, for these these types of you know, data discovery and classification exercises. And, you know, and they're, they're never ending, right? Because as soon as you complete a, you know, a scan of your environment and identify where, where all the data is, um, they, the data footprints change, so you've got to start again. Um, so, yeah, I guess if yeah, you know, if we look back 15 years again, and, and I guess I, I like looking you know, a little bit in the past, um, the way we we collected data was totally different to today, right? And the volume of data collected was nowhere near what it is today. And years ago, organisations may have had gigabytes or, or terabytes of data, you know, under their organisation's remit or control, but today we're talking about petabytes and, and even you know, larger volumes of data that, that organisations hold um, on their staff, on their customers, uh, and so on. And so, you know, discovering and classifying where sensitive and critical business data is in our environment, it's important to understand, no doubt about it. Um, and predominantly, you know, it's used from a risk perspective to identify you know, where you need to focus your efforts, right? Understanding what where data is in your environment and how much of it you've got certainly helps guide uh, what you're going to do after that to help protect it, right, and the, the additional controls and so on that you're going to put around it to, to help protect that data. Um, but, you know, the problem, you know, as I say, is, is data classification is that it's a never-ending exercise and once you finish one pass of the environment, you know, the data footprint's already changed and, and you've got to, you know, essentially start again. Uh, and secondly, you know, it doesn't really tell you what data, out of all the data that you have in your, your enterprise, doesn't actually tell you what data is actively being used by the business and therefore business critical, right, and likely to be uh, the target of, of, of a data loss event because it is being regularly used by, by um, you know, users or customers or you know, whoever's interacting with that data. So you know, it'll data discovery and, and classification will provide you with huge amounts of data telling you, you know, all this information about, you know, the data types that you have in the environment, where specific data is. But, you know, my question is, you know, then what, right? Because the value of the, the exercise to the business is typically quite minimal for all the effort and cost that goes into it. Um, 
you know, and, and unless you have a very uh, well-rounded uh, data protection strategy, it, it's it's difficult to you know to, to get value out of those sort of exercises. And by that I mean, yeah, data classification on its own is just that. It's a, it's an island, right? It needs to be definitely integrated with you know, well integrated with other technology in the environment. Uh, and other technology stacks from a data protection perspective and from a privacy perspective to give you, you know, really the business benefit that, that it should give you. And most organisations are just not that mature. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what do they help us with? Um, well, you know, from a, from a discovery and classification perspective, data privacy, right? So, Data privacy, and I'll, I'll maybe talk a little bit about that. And uh, yeah, data privacy and data security are often, you know, get used interchangeably. Um, you know, which you know is, is something that that you know for whatever reason people do. And and you know, I think people need to really understand that they are two very different things, uh, and shouldn't really be used interchangeably. Because you know, when you look at data security, it's all about making sure data is securely captured, communicated stored and you know, we've got the right processes around accessing it in place to, to make sure it's accessed securely. But data privacy is, is really all about making sure that, you know, again, we collect and handle the data in line with privacy laws and privacy acts, right? Um, and and you know, to achieve data privacy, you could probably say that the data security principles are almost a must to have in place, right? So you need all those things that help you secure the data in place to really achieve on top of that your data privacy outcomes. So, you know, data privacy is definitely, um, you know, requires good data security practices as a foundation, uh, particularly for meeting, you know, privacy laws. And, you know, the Australian Privacy Act is, is something that, you know, that helps, you know, I guess organisations, you know, accelerate their, their data privacy but also data protection and data security strategies um, so, you know, again, it's, it's regulation that, that's typically driving these, you know, uh, organisations to do something about data security and data privacy um, rather than them just doing it on their own accord. So, yeah, I believe from a, a, a security outcome perspective, monitoring access to all your data gives you a, a much better and faster indication of what data is actually important and, and relevant in most cases um, to, to operating the business from a, a criticality perspective. Uh, it also shows you um, yeah, and allows you to gain complete visibility on, you know, again, who's, who's accessing the data in the environment, how they're using it. Uh, and this is invaluable as, as really it gives you the ability to ensure that the data you hold in the organisation is actually being used and accessed by end users um, in line with business expectations. Uh, and often we see... You know, through, through my experience, we see uh, data that's misused by those who actually have legitimate access to it, right? So, again, traditional controls like identity and access management, which, you know, pr provide a user access to data, aren't going to tell you whether, whether the data that they're accessing through the use of their privileges is actually in line with you know, their business practices and, and, and the role that they're providing, you know, within the business. So... It's often the, the, the anomalous and, and I guess what I'll call misappropriate access to data by end users that leads to, to data loss and data breaches, right? So if you can do something about it and spot the bad behaviours beforehand, then, you know, you're likely to, to shut down any, you know, any 
uh, data loss event or, or data breach event that may occur from that down the track. Mm, okay, so great points. I want to go back a step just to press on the SIs or system integrators, not in a bad way, but just to explore that a little bit more. So if you're a client and you've engaged a system integrator for whatever reason, you still need to do your due diligence. So do you think that clients are aware that perhaps some integrators are relying off that old school playbook and they are maybe naive to it or they know that they're doing it, but it doesn't matter because they've got a big firm in there so they can just blame them if something were to go wrong? Like what's the dynamic there? Because you still got a level of due diligence as a, as a CISO or security manager in a company with whatever organization externally that you engage, right? Oh, for sure. And, and yeah, look, I think, as I say, people get the, the big GSIs in, especially, you know, your larger organisations because, you know, not that it's a blame game, but, you know, they can essentially then, you know, point back to the, the integrator as, as being the one that has guided them from a strategy perspective, right? So, you know, you never get fired for, uh, you know, well, they say you never get fired for, for engaging with, with IBM or Cisco, right? They're the big players in the market, right? So I think that's some, somewhat, um, you know, falls true to the, to the big system integrators as well who are, you know, who are guiding these organisations and, and um, CISOs, CISOs, they're, they're counting on, um, you know, the guidance that they get from, from these uh, integrators as, as being, I guess, the best that, the best advice that they're going to get for for uh, for shaping their data protection strategies and, and executing on them. So I'd like to switch gears now and steer the conversation to how we we as an industry can better adopt data protection practices. Now you sort of touched on a little bit. We've sort of touched on where people are going wrong, things to sort of look out for. But I'm I'm keen to sort of understand from your perspective. What can we do as in like today after people are listening to this interview? Like what can people start to focus their energy on? Yeah, look, I mean, I guess, you know, I can't emphasise enough the importance of monitoring your big data repositories, the data stores that that data is initially going into from all these applications that that you're developing and have running in the environment, right, to collect data from from your customers, from your staff, from, you know, all the different facets of, of how your business operates. So, you know, I think that's that can be something that that you can implement quickly and get a quick win out of, um, and I think it's very relevant because again, it it uh, shows you if you're monitoring all your data, you understand what data in your environment is most used, right? What's most relevant to the business, and and therefore, you know, it's a different perspective on where to focus and prioritize your efforts when when putting additional controls around you know the data that that's the most important to the business um, regulation. Um, can help adoption, but you know, ultimately, organisations you know, really need to change their their data, you know, practices and, and implement effective data protection uh, and privacy strategies, right, and programs, uh, which we're seeing, yeah, you know, a large, uh, I guess, uptick in because of, again, you know, things like the data, the Australian Data Privacy Act, right, forcing the issue, the notifiable da- data breach legislation, uh, legislation that's again forcing the issue, right? It's forcing, um, you know, organisations within Australia to really act on being proper data custodians for, for their data. Okay, so let's talk about monitoring now. Do you believe enough people are doing this at all from your experience? Well, yeah, great question. So, yeah, again, the heavily regulated industries like the banks, yeah, definitely most of those are doing it uh, and they're doing it at, at a granular level. 
And, you know, by that I mean they're not just looking at somebody logging into a database and logging out of a database. They're actually, you know, granularly monitoring what that user did when they interacted with data. Did they, you know, did they insert new data? Did they modify or manipulate data that was in the database? Did they delete data? Um, and was that, you know, deletion actually something they should have been doing, right? Because we've seen plenty of... Um, Plenty of plenty of employees, you know, and ins- what I'll call insider threats, I guess, um, yeah, uh, perform operations on data that, that they should never have, have actually done in order to cover up something, um, and and that's you know quite common practice. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's the in-depth monitoring of data that's needed, not just a, a login log-out event which tells you absolutely nothing about what the user did in, you know. Or, within their interaction with data. Now, this is an interesting question because I guess it comes back to creatures of habit. So just so hypothetically, everyone's like, yes, I love what Reinhardt's saying. I'm going to start doing monitoring. I'm going to do all the things that he said. But one of the things as human nature is the follow-through. So it's all well and good to say, this is amazing. This is what we're going to do. We're going to have a plan. But what about the follow-through, the staying of the course? I don't see enough people doing that. Uh, even at real basic level, like even going to the gym, it's like every year it's like I'm going to go to the gym and then no one's followed through by like the third third week. And that's like a relatively easier thing to do than perhaps what we're talking about here today. So how do people really stay the course? Yeah, I mean, I think to stay the course, you feel you first need to you know, develop a, a very well thought out uh, data protection and data privacy strategy uh, that the organisation then can, can execute on. And yeah, you know, that that doesn't come easy, um, especially if you're yeah got your eyes closed and are, are only looking at at um, yeah as we talked about technologies and controls that are really yeah you know, haven't kept pace with with the way that that you know um, we need to secure data in in today's environment. Um, so yeah, you know, look, I mean, part of that strategy needs to be securing you know the the things that access data as well as you know focusing on the data itself. Um, so you know again. Your web applications, your mobile apps, your APIs, all, as I say, acknowledged as now being the, the largest gateways to data in our environments. Those areas, you know, they sit around the data and they, they, they're the gateways to data. They, they need to be secured. Um, yeah, and, and there's plenty of, of well-established technology out there to, to do that. Um, I think for a quick win, you know, again, monitoring access to data is, is one thing, but the volume of data that can actually come out of monitoring access to your data stores is absolutely massive. Uh, it's you know, monumental in some of the, the data that you know, points that can come out and the volume of the data when you're actually doing this monitoring of data stores. So that can be overwhelming for many enterprises and, and you know, uh, operational teams. And I think to way to, the way to make effective um, use of, of that telemetry that they're now getting from monitoring and very closely monitoring data store access in their environment is through the use of, of AI and machine learning and, and behavioral analysis type technologies uh, to again help prioritize and identify you know, what I'll call, call um, poor data access practices, insider threats, um, and, and of course the potential data breaches from, from these large you know, data repositories. So I think yeah, it needs to be a well-rounded strategy, um, but there there needs to be a bit more of a, an open eye to, to looking at uh, other controls that are, that are really going to help them get runs on the board faster as far as executing the strategy. Do you often see 
clients from your experience, again, with the right intention to, we're going to do these things, we're going to implement these things with, they have the, like I said, the right intention, but perhaps their execution is just not quite there. And I don't like to use the word fail, but perhaps they, they try to do it, but they can't get it off the ground. And then they sort of just go back into their old ways. You have, have you seen a lot of that happen before? Yeah. I mean, it's getting, it's getting better, but you're right. I mean, that happens and it happens because there's, there's typically not a lot of, you know, what I would call data security professionals in the market, right? When you compare the market and the resources at, at you know, at our disposal or at an organisation's disposal. Um, there's plenty of network security people. There's plenty of endpoint security people. But when it comes to database security and data security and data protection, the number of people in the market is, is relatively small. Um, so with, you know, the movement of people and, and you know, the, the difficulties we have around retaining people in an organisation today, uh, because, you know, let's face it, the market's, you know, quite hot at the moment. Uh, people are moving around to different opportunities. That, that can lead to the stalling of programs, the loss of, you know, expertise and knowledge in, in how to execute them. And if things aren't well documented, then, you know, a lot of that gets lost and it's very difficult to transition to, to somebody new that comes into the organisation. And, and that's if we can actually find somebody new to backfill the person that, that we've just lost with the right skill sets. So, yeah, I think, yeah, the the resource shortage is definitely one of the biggest things that, that I think underpins um, the lack of ability to stay the course and and execute on a strategy you know longer term. Yeah, you're so right. And I absolutely agree with you on all those points because I guess again going back to staying the course is something that you need to have that follow through in order to to get these outcomes in order to. To be a great CISO, you need you need to do the follow through. What sort of advice would you have for perhaps for the CISOs or security managers that are listening to this show that are like, I, I don't have the staff. He's right. I I don't have the, the best sort of uh, thought out plan or, or the best sort of strategy that my that I'm using with my system integrator. What can you provide to people that perhaps just even gets them moving, even if it's just one degree to get on the right path? Yeah. Look, I mean, I think. You're one of the biggest things that they can do to help, you know, help do this and I guess shield them a little bit from the resource shortage um, is automation. So they can certainly pick platforms and tools that, that integrate well with each other, which is not always easy to do when it comes to data protection uh, and privacy. Um, so, you know, choosing a platform that really, you know, has the ability to, to do all these more modern aspects of, of data protection. So being able to do perform data classification on the same platform that you're also able to monitor all your data stores from and, you know, combining that with a, a lot of automation and, and machine learning and AI can really help, you know, reduce that dependency on specialised uh, resources being needed to, you know, to execute on all that. So that can certainly help uh, get, you know, some quick wins on the board uh, and certainly make that yeah, that step both immediately and and longer term, right, to, to help you execute that that strategy. So obviously I'm conscious of time and your time because I know that you're very, very busy. In light of everything that we've sort of spoken about today, some of the problems, what, we, what people can do, what people can do when they've got limited resources, can you perhaps talk around some of the tangible benefits? Because maybe that even if these people don't have the right, right people or the right strategy or the right plan in place, maybe they can see the light that, 
at the end of the tunnel around the benefits that come with the adoption to a more modern approach to data protection. Can you can you explain what they are? Well, yeah, I mean, to, yeah, when you're talking about tangible benefits that you know come out of you know adopting more modern approaches to data protection, data privacy, well, the ability to to get better visibility to start with on what's happening around data access in the environment and translating that into, you know, actionable um, insights and, and incidents, I guess you could say, that, that uh, an operations team can act on to, to help clean up the environment, right? So when you when you look at today's, you know, uh, you know organisations, most of them, as I say, they simply don't understand, you know, what I'll, again, will refer to as the, the who, what, when, where, why, and how of data access, right? If you can uh, if you can answer the questions of who accessed a particular piece of data, you know, what did they do with that data? When did they do it? You know, where did they do it from, right? So what application did they use to, to, to access that data from? Why did they do it, right, is a big question. And, and, and how does that, you know, fit in line with, you know, the business expectations around how data is being accessed. I think, you know, if, if you can answer even some of those today, um, you're miles ahead of, of uh, most organisations, uh, particularly, as I say, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll reflect again on something I already said, and that is like it's not in today's landscape necessarily uh, if you're going to get breached, uh, it's when you're going to get breached, right? And if you can't answer those, those questions about, you know, data access, then, you know, you, you've got to basically, you know, say to a regulator or a, a privacy commissioner of Australia that, well, I don't know how much data was taken, so I've got to assume that all data was taken. Um, and that's a big problem, right, when you then have to map that to a, a response and, and how to handle that, you know, from a from a cost perspective, notifying all your users that their data is potentially being breached um, is, a, is a massive cost and exercise and you know, then you have all the other fallout that comes with that. So, yeah, some of, some of the other benefits are that, you know, if you put in a proper data security strategy and execute on it, there's there's actually tangible cost savings you know, related to, to staff time being used better. Um, you're upholding brand reputation. Uh, so, again, that's, you know, something that certainly helps from a, you know, a business perspective uh, longer term. Uh, and there's you know, potentially infrastructure and storage costs reductions through you know through better monitoring your data. Um, so I think the you know the the culture uh, of the business needs to to change in order to obviously enable all this. But you know there are some really big tangible benefits in, in being able to adopt a, a more modern approach to data protection. Reinhardt, it's been a real pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks for making time. No worries, thank Carissa. Great being on the program, and uh, yeah, maybe we can do this again sometime. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by kbi.media, the voice of cyber.